0: that even from the temptations, the sin that easily besets, that which would easily beguile our soul, Your indwelling Spirit, through the use of Your Word and the means of grace, gives us the ability to discern and to repent, to turn from and turn to You. As we open Your Scriptures this day for each believer in this room, may these words fortify us to do exactly that, glorify You, be more faithful in covenant keeping as a result of placing our attention upon your immortal truth. If there are any unbelievers in the hearing of this message, may you use your holy word to draw them to repentance and faith, realizing that the consequences of sin is death, either taken upon Jesus or suffered in hell. I pray, Lord, that the reality of our life lived in light of your sovereignty, would be awakened to us in greater degree as we put place our eyes upon your scripture. And as we do so, may you write it on the tables of our hearts so we would not soon forget its truths and all that you might be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a glorious blessing we have an opportunity before us to set our mind on the things of the Lord and to allow the corrective tool of scripture to search our own hearts that we might grow in him and be aware of areas where we're falling short. Today's message is titled Rock Versus Wind. That's a name for God and a term used to describe us in Psalm 78, verses 32 through 40. Would you turn there with me today? Psalms 78, 32 through 40, rock versus wind. God is a rock, we, apart from him, Upon our own are a mere wind, a breeze that blows and is gone. It's lost and aimless. The aim of this morning's message is to inspire covenant faithfulness, considering covenant consequences. To inspire covenant faithfulness, considering covenant consequences. We've remarked in our last two messages in Psalm 78, this is the third of five, by the way, Lord willing, that 1 Corinthians 10 provides a framework for our understanding of the record of Old Testament Scripture, the narrative of God's people in the wilderness and their exodus experience. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things were written down for our instruction that we may not fall into the same pitfalls, the same sins, the same predisposition to unfaithfulness, the same covenant breaking that they did. And so as we see their record laid out before us today, may it instruct us I pray through the proclamation of these words of the frailty of the human condition, and may it point us to Christ, the only perfect human, whose perfect law-keeping, whose perfect perfect covenant faithfulness earned for us the righteousness that is counted to us and upon His death and our faith transferred to our account and renders us justified before God the Father. This morning, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Holy Word? With your Bible open to Psalm 78, and let us consider verses 32 through 40 together. Here we have the infallible, inerrant, and holy word of the Lord. Verse 32, Psalm 78, In spite of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered Him with their mouths. They lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. Yet He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained His wrath often and did not stir up All his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. As a cross reference, would you turn with me again in your Scriptures to Isaiah 29? Isaiah 29. Isaiah prophesied to a people that were under the condemnation of Psalm 78. They experienced these kinds of consequences because many generations later, of course, after the Exodus generation, they displayed the same human tendency to fall into disrepair, to serve self, to get their focus and attention off of the Lord onto idolatry. And thus, uh, illustrated, Psalm 78 is illustrated very well and it's abiding truth, not just in our day, which will come as an application point later. We can relate to the consequences of Psalm 78 and the tendencies that the people of God displayed because it's all around us in the ostensible church and in culture of America, American society today. But this uh, Isaiah was no stranger to these influences as well. And I want to read to you a passage of Scripture that dovetails Psalm 78, 32 through 40 today from Isaiah 29. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen through 16. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep, From the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? Verse 16, you turn things upside down. You say, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. A couple of things to notice from this passage. First of all, the people drew close to the Lord with their, their mouth, their words, their confession. They said that they had a covenant relationship, that they loved the Lord, that they honored Him. But their hearts, their true selves, their deepest ambitions and desires, and the consistency of their life was far from Him. This so is the same in Psalm 78. Therefore, the Lord says He will multiply wonder upon wonder. But there's something different about these wonders, as Isaiah goes on to describe. Whereas the wonders before were miraculous moments of deliverance and provision, like the Red Sea crossing and manna descending from heaven, the wonders he will multiply now are wonders of judgment, like a quail falling out of the sky, inducing the people into a gluttonous stupor, followed by a plague, followed by graves of lust at Kibroth Hata'ava, as we read in Numbers 11. And so this will happen again. God's wonders will be multiplied in judgment because the people did not heed his wonders, multiplied in deliverance. The final thing that he notes is that this idea in these three verses, four verses, that this idea of the people judging God by themselves or serving self instead of him or judging that they themselves in their wisdom, in their insight, in their perceptions, and their own sensibilities are superior to the Lord, they have turned things upside down. And that's a, it's as if a clay pot would say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Or I can do a better job, or you don't know what you're doing. This is echoed in, of course, uh, Romans chapter nine, later when people second guess the work, the sovereign work of God and salvation. And Paul responds to the objector saying, who do you think you are? Who are you? As Clay to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? As we turn back to our text in Psalm 78, we see, therefore, in the continuity of Scripture that these ideas are all through the pages of God's revelation. This passage, Isaiah 29, you could add to it, of course, Romans 9 in our passage, in our, uh, in our text today, emphasize the fallout and futility, fallout and futility of trusting the words of men over the word of God. That's a question I would like us to ask ourselves a lot. Do we live in a land where, or are we sometimes a people who trust the words of men over the word of God? Since the fall in Eden, Adam and Eve are spiritual parents. Since the fall in Eden, our sinful condition could be characterized as a war of words. The word of God versus the word of his enemies. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the devil had a different word than the word of God. And so there was conflict. Between the battle lines, between these two claims, truth claims, were drawn. The Lord's enemies, in this case, were the devil, and we would extend the Lord's enemies to include all who exalt themselves, all who seek to exalt themselves as an authority over the Most High. As the Scriptures go on again in Romans to say that all who oppose the Lord are in enmity with Him. That is to say, they are enemies with Him. They are declaring war on the Word of God, with their own words or the words that they got from somewhere else than the scriptures. However, the hope we do find in our chapter today, even in our text, Psalm 78, 32 through 40, we do find hope. And this hope in Israel's history also reaches back to the early pages of Genesis. God had covenanted with Noah, promising Noah and all of his lineage not to utterly destroy the earth again. And the rainbow, of course, is a promise of this very pact, this solemn oath that the Lord made with Noah, not to totally destroy the earth, even though we can see good argument that the earth deserves it. This reminds us that God keeps His promises all the time. God keeps His promises at this time in Israel's history that's recorded in Psalm 78. That's memorialized there, even though His people do not keep theirs. God keeps His promises, even though His people do not keep their promises. Therefore, since we are weak and frail, prone to sin, and can relate to that rebellious generation in the wilderness, we, His people, must remember that our only hope is in Yahweh. Why do I use that name for the Lord? Because it's His name that implies covenant keeping. God who never breaks his promises, Yahweh is our only hope. This morning, the emphasis of Psalm 78, 32 through 40 is heavy upon the consequences of covenant breaking. Let me give you a heading as follows. When we exalt our word over the word of God, or you could say when we exalt another word over the word of God, the following are true. First of all, his wonders remain unconvincing to us. If we exalt another word over the Word of God, His wonders remain unconvincing to us. Number two, we find in our text that we languish in vanity. If we look to another authority, if we exalt another word over the Word of the Lord, we languish, we wither, we die in vanity. Number three, when we exalt another word over the Word of God, calamity inspires merely superficial reform. Changes might be made, Quote, unquote, repentance might seem to be forthcoming, but calamity that inspires it actually moves us to merely superficial reform, not a true change of heart. And finally, when we exalt another word over the word of the Lord, our confession, our words fall short of covenant. Our words fall short of covenant faithfulness. So let us explore this in our passage today. As Asaph makes his point in Psalm 78. First of all, I'd like to draw your attention to the structure of our section here. What I have discovered, and I think I can qualify, I think I can make this point, submit this to you, as self evident in the structure of these verses, we have a chiastic framework. What in the world is a chiastic structure? Well, chiasm is a Greek uh, word that indicates the letter X. It's kind of indicative of a shape. And there are beautiful moments, even in the poetic and literary structure of the Scripture, where a perfect symmetry of ideas is laid out. And we find this kind of symmetry in our text today. Let me try to make this simple for you. Verse 32 is an idea that corresponds with verse 40. So the first and the last verses are a similar pairing. Next, verse 33, corresponds to verse 39. So the second and second to last verses in this text have a parallel uh, idea. And and, uh, so it continues, verse 34, uh, we see paired with verse 38. Verse 35 paired with verse 37. And this leaves us with verse 36, which is right in the center. Now when the scriptures lay out a structure of ideas like this typically we can point to the center and see something that is pivotal, <clears throat> something that is pivotal or foundation for the message of the text. And so this pivotal uh, or center point comes in verse 36. But they flattered him with their mouths they lied to him with their tongues. They flattered him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongues. So when our word is more important or exalted above the Lord's word. All of the surrounding ideas come into view. So let us look at them. First of all, deaf ears. Verse 32. In spite of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. This, of course, is paired, as I mentioned, with verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. In spite of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. How often did they rebel against him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Each one of these verses has a pair in it as well. In spite of this, they still sinned. The first phrase or idea. Secondly, despite his wonders, they did not believe. And then within that, in this beautiful symmetry, we see the following. We see a reason where they are without excuse, first of all, for all of this and then a rejection of this truth in the fact that they still sinned, and then a reason to hold them accountable, his wonders, and secondly, them falling short they did not believe. That's in verse 32. So what was all of this that Asaph referred to? Well, that, of course, is the wonders of the Lord that were revealed in chastisement and judgment in the verses that preceded. You remember, he commanded the skies above in verse 23, And open up the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. But then we jump to verse 32. In spite of all of this, God providing them this food in the wilderness, despite His wonders in sending the bread of angels to sustain His people, they did not believe. They still sinned. But more than this act of deliverance and salvation, we have multiplied by wonders per Isaiah 29, an act of judgment. Verse 26 He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. Remember, he rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds, quail, descended upon them. I indicated last week that the dead birds would have been three feet thick, but I wanted to correct the record. Some, most commentaries say there was probably a cloud of birds about three feet off the ground that came in, um, perhaps in, in a day's journey. The, the scriptures do say in Numbers 11, um, in a day's journey radius. So if you stood here and walked for a day and then kept that circle and walked all the way around, you have this sort of a sea of birds flying three feet off the ground. And the, the meat was so readily available that it was indeed the case that those who gathered least among them. Uh, had haystacks of the equivalent of 480 gallons of birds to chow on. And so they were eating these things. Verse 29, They ate and were filled, for He gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them. And notice, He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. This was a mighty judgment of the Lord that came upon them at this time. We... They demanded their cravings. They elevated their word or their desires, in this case, above the knowledge of God. And the result was a reckoning in history where their indulgence proved to be judgment and God brought a plague upon them. So here we see the consequences of flattering lips, of lying tongues, of exalting another word above the word of the Lord. His wonders remain unconvincing. People who are blinded by the superiority of their own ideas, their own thought, and by idolatry, generally speaking, are unconvinced. They are unmoved. They do not find it impressive, the things that God has done in history. The creation of this world, the maintenance of the same, sustaining the entire universe Ushering his people through the Red Sea, leading them with cloud and fire, opening up the windows of heaven, delivering meals on wheels from glory, prepared by angels that taste like honey on the tongue. All of these were unimpressive to a people that exalted themselves over the Lord and did not place a priority on his word. His wonders, his judgments remained unconvincing. Verse 40, We see, added to this, these words, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Now, to illustrate this rebellion and this grief, the tragic consequences of unrepentant self-exaltation, even the name of the place, as we've mentioned before, Kibroth Hata'ava, which means graves of lust in the Greek, forever memorialized, this incident before them if they did they did not grieve over their sin therefore they grieved over the loss of the youngest and strongest among them he rose and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of israel the future generation was buried in graves of lust that is graves that were dug by the unrestrained cravings and desires of a sinful people who served themselves more than the Lord. They did not grieve over their sin, so they ended up grieving over their children as they laid them in graves at Kibroth HaTava. Whenever they remembered that place, it was identified from then on. The people of God identified with that place as the place where they lost a generation, virtually, where children died where young men were buried, where a people right and left were dropping like flies became a memorial of great loss. In spite of ourselves, as much as we would like to forget the judgments of God and our sin, there, is an inevitable, there are inevitable milestones all through history that record indelibly, that means they can't be erased, in the consciousness and the memorials of the people, great loss. Battlefields are like this. Uh, we don't know, I don't, couldn't tell you what Gettysburg stood for or represented or was famous for prior to the killing fields of the great war between the states. But we certainly re, realize what it represents after, uh, since that moment. Forever in the consciousness, or I should say indefinitely in the consciousness, seared upon the cultural memory of the United States when we think of Gettysburg as we think of a killing field. Why? Because of sin. As any war and killing field, it can uh, uh, occur in our day and in our experience just as it was then. In some part, we can drill down, we can look at the cause and effects, and we find the weakness, the frailty, the self-exaltation, the incorrigibility, the sin of man. And so rebellion and grief attended the wilderness wanderings of the people of God because the wonders of the Lord remained unconvincing to them. Secondly, this morning, lesson from Psalm 78 that is emphasized in our text, when we exalt our word over the word of God, another word or authority over the authority of God, we languish in vanity. Notice verse 33 and verse 39. It says, so he made their days vanish like a breath. And pausing on that word breath right there, that's an important word in the Hebrew. It can also be translated vapor. It can be translated a number of ways. Hebel is the name, and is the term, and it is actually a central theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the same word, Hebel. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. And turning over, pairing this with verse 39. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. That's the same idea, a vapor, a wisp, something transient, something passing. The people lost their meaning, lost their identity, lost their purpose, lost their sense of unity, their confidence, their foundation, the purpose for their own existence. Instead, what replaced their calling and their cause, their direction and ambition, which if they were grounded, was on the law of God and following Him faithfully and obedient, remembering His great gracious deliverance through the Red Sea. Instead of this, they began to languish in vanity. Again, in Hebrew, this word corresponds, hebel, with emptiness, with transitory, that is, things that come and go but never stay, no permanence, no foundation. Unsatisfactory, can never satisfy, leaves you longing, wanting more never content or happy, fleeting, fraudulent, fake, false, futile, nothing, delusion, empty, useless, vapor. As I mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, these lessons were learned personally in the hard way by the preacher, by the author of the book. And it Ecclesi- just as one phrase that corresponds so beautifully with our text today, or a few verses in Ecclesiastes chapter three, beginning in 19, "For what happens to the children of man, and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other." The people slaughtered all this coil, these beasts, gorged themselves on them and then dropped like flies with a plague as the quail died so did they they all have the same breath the author of ecclesiastes continues and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity that is all is habel. all is emptiness meaninglessness all go to one place all are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work for that is his law. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now this attitude, this philosophical position you could say described in modern terms as nihilism or meaninglessness. Becomes a shroud that clouds the consciousness of a people who exalt themselves Above the Lord. If we exalt another word, another other desires, our cravings, if we place those things above the Lord, we languish in vanity. Our life loses its meaning, its importance, its sense of uh, comfort, and its sense of clarity and purpose, confidence and contentment. This led to years of terror. Verse 33 back in Psalm 78, He made their days vanish like a breath, a hebel and their years in terror. So now, their time was marked by plaguing fear that they couldn't shake. And they, as try as they might, reaching within themselves, they could not find the tools to give themselves peace of mind once again. And our society knows this well. Even though we have all these good reasons, we might think to feel confident about our condition, self-important and self-assured and self-protected, Yet our years in America are spent in terror. Recently there was a school shooting. Uh, You all know this. Uh, 17th, excuse me, as I recall, high school students gunned down by a rogue gunner. And immediately the airwaves of the media are filled with what should we do about it? What should we do about it? What should we do about it? I listened to one podcast from a Christian worldview standpoint and they said it well. Everyone that was featured on television, virtually everyone that was featured on television was praying, please help, please help. But who were they praying to? They were praying to senators, to congressmen, to the president, to the government. Ban this, do that, intervene here, shame on you, our blood's on your hands. Help us, help us, help us. Praying to ourselves. We languish in vanity, spend our years in terror If our highest appeal, the highest authority, that which can do something about it, conceivable in our minds is ourselves, government, the collective, a president, administration, policies, laws, police force. a People who have no higher to reach than that for peace will spend their years in terror. Right now in Afghanistan, they tell me 16 plus years or something, it is the longest running war Longest running violent conflict that our armed forces have been involved in since the history of this nation. And what is it a war against? It's a war against terror. We have fought for 16 years to try to defeat terror as a people. Are we successful? There's a reason why this war has lasted as long as it is. Because until we appeal to the Lord as a people, we will spend our years in terror. And that battle, that war will never one. Peace does not come through the sword. Peace comes through the Prince of Peace until we worship and serve Him, until He is exalted once again on the throne of our nation. Then we will spend our years in terror. In verse 39 we see the consequences of this kind of thing. Or we uh, see a parallel of this uh, kind of vanity. He remembered that they were but flesh and wind that passes and comes not again. That is, the Lord considered them. He relegated them, uh, treated them as if they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes again. In other words, the people in their unfaithfulness were like expendable chaff to the breeze. They were, like Ecclesiastes said, rendered worthless. And it, their death was no more important in one sense than that of a beast because their worthless life was Uh, was taken away and their breath that they had, if that was all they lived for, this life came to nothing. Thank God that there is truly meaning beyond what this life can promise. But if our hope and investment is only in this life, the only thing that will fill our lives and lifestyles, our consciousness, our hopes, and our mindset is the despair, is despair and meaninglessness and absurdity. And this itself is a judgment on a people. We see this in our land. Nihilism is draped like a shroud. Nihilism means meaninglessness. It's this idea that since there is no God, the atheists, the God haters tell us, since there is no higher authority, there can be no higher meaning. So life is reduced to a bunch of chance consequences with no hope beyond the grave. Nihilism, therefore, the sense of meaninglessness is draped like a shroud over the consciousness of a people who have lost their love and their adoration, their faith in the Lord. And it saps the significance from their day-to-day existence. And it becomes, as the poet says, sound and fury signifying nothing. A hollow shell once inhabited by meaning and purpose and ambition. Life that was worth something is now echoing with hollow despair and absurdity. When we exalt ourselves or another word over the word of the Lord, we languish in vanity. We get to some hope in point number three, but I think it's important to realize the weight of the consequences, the despair that rushes in when the vacuum of God's exaltation in our uh, in our experience is is lost this uh, point number three comes to us calamity inspires superficial reform when we exalt ourselves or another word over the word of God calamity inspires merely <clears throat> superficial reform verse thirty four when he killed them there's the calamity they sought him they repented and sought God earnestly now this verse we could we could correlate with verse thirty nine, excuse me thirty eight. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Praise the Lord, there is hope. When he killed them, they sought him. Notice this glaring three this glaring three word phrase. He killed them. Who killed who? God Himself killed the unfaithful children of Israel. In the record, those who were satisfying their own cravings, rejecting the Lord and serving the God of their belly. When they in anger rose up against the Lord, the Lord in anger rose up against them. Verse 31 echoes the same phrase, He killed them. He killed the strongest of them, that is to say, and laid low the young men of Israel. Isaiah 45 verse seven proclaims that God in his sovereignty is Lord over calamity. I bring calamity, the Lord says, I create it. The Lord brings deliverance as much as he brings judgment. Now this is an unpalatable thought for the concept of God that we're willing to consider in our day and age. People cannot, uh, they cannot uh, abide by the reality that God creates calamity, that God actually kills people, that he brings his judgment in due course and in due time and is just and right in doing so. Uh, Through the centuries, man has tried to justify God with the reality of evil all around us and that question is called the theodicy question. You know, the story of mankind and the story of evil in light of God. How can there be a good God in the presence of evil in the world is the begging or the uh, probing question uh, the theodicy tries to answer. Let me submit to you that this confusion of of evil and the calamity that exists around us is primarily a rejection of the truth that our sin deserves judgment. Our sin deserves judgment. Once you realize that the wages of sin are truly death, and you realize that hell is prepared for covenant breakers who do not trust a mediator to intercede on their behalf and do not realize the value of sovereignly provided atonement, then it becomes a great wonder why God did not kill them all. And in spite of the unfaithfulness of the people, it becomes a great blessing, a grace and mercy, and a glorious truth that He kept the Noahic covenant, the covenant to Noah, not to destroy all human beings on the earth again, because the Lord knows we certainly deserve it. So this calamity comes; He kills them. It inspires something, but it's not. It is not something that has any lasting power. Represents a true change of heart. It is insincere. He killed them, verse 30, thirty-four, and they sought Him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Would you turn to Second Corinthians seven? With me, which illustrates or identifies the principle illustrated in this text. So there is a change in some sense. There is provisional reform, or there's a temporary shift in the people's thinking. They repent and sought the Lord earnestly. In what sense could we say that the people repented? Well, 2 Corinthians 7 9 and 10 answers this question. Paul writes to the church, As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Notice, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's godly grief. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There we have it. There is a worldly grief and a godly grief. When people exalt their own word above the word of the Lord, they respond with grief to calamity, but it is a worldly grief. It leads to a repentance of sorts, but it is not a repentance that leads to life. It is not genuine. It is temporary. It's a repentance that ultimately leads to death because it doesn't represent a true change of heart. No, I've been in ministry long enough to do a few funerals over the years. And funerals have a way of drawing everyone together around the fact that death is inescapable in this world, aside from, you know, the supernatural, second resurrection, the Lord's return, and that kind of thing. But in the course of ordinary life, death is something we try to forget. We like to uh, forget. We we, uh, live most of our life in denial. But at a funeral, that calamity provides the occasion for our eyes to be open and Oftentimes, at funerals I've been at, particularly where Christ is not exalted in the testimony of those who grieve, there are like smelling salts that awaken them from their stupor, from their delusion for a little while. Oh, really got to be thankful. You never know when your day is going to come. Wow, it really makes me rethink. I, you know, And people talk like they're making an accounting and they're repenting. And their perspective is going to be altered by this experience. But unless that grief is a godly grief that represents a spirit wrought change of heart, those smelling salts wear off. And in a matter of days and weeks, you see it over and over again, people return to their same old familiar ways, their same old delusions, their same old idols and cravings. Why? because it's the way we cope with the difficulties of life. God has prescribed a coping mechanism for us that has nothing to do with self and nothing to do with this world. We don't find comfort in comfort foods. We don't find assurance in insurance. We don't find joy in entertainment. These are not sources of true hope, true endurance, true joy. They are merely superficial reforms or things that we lean on. And if we have a brief awakening, that momentary lapse of sobriety will be just that. It will leave. Like apples attached to an oak tree with clothespins. I had that picture in my mind. The fruit of ungodly grief or worldly grief is like attaching apples to a oak tree with clothespins. At first it looks like, oh, there's real fruit here. But on closer notice... We see that it's attached in an ad hoc fashion and give it a few days, few weeks, and it starts to rot. Therefore, where can hope be found? Well, the parallel verse, verse 38, points us the direction of true heart change. Yet he, this is the Lord, being compassionate, faithful to his covenant and loving, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. The Lord restrained his anger. He didn't kill everyone in the quail incident at Kibroth Hatava. He didn't kill everyone when the venomous snakes bit the people upon their complaining, or when the earth opened up to swallow Laura and his followers, or when the ground erupted with a judgment fire to slaughter the 250 chieftains, who had been insubordinate against the Lord's appointed authority. No, the Lord had grace and he had mercy. He didn't destroy them all. He restrained his anger often. He did not stir up all his wrath. We've asked the question from Nahum, how can we be spared if God does not clear the guilty? Herein is our answer, saints. The Lord must provide atonement for our sin. The Lord must provide atonement for our iniquity. At this time in Psalm 78, the conception of this atonement was figured in the sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple. There in innocent animals, blood was shed as a substitute, picturing the idea that salvation can only come when a substitute dies in our place. When the wrath that God holds back, when the anger that He does not fully pour out, when His restraining judgments are there, they are only there because He provides atonement for their iniquity. This verse points us to Christ, does it not? It points us to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the true provision of atonement, which once and for all would provide for our iniquity. How do you know that your grief is not just worldly? If you look to Christ and not to circumstances, not to self, we cannot reform ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We must look to Christ. He is the atonement provided for our iniquity. He is the only source of true deliverance and true hope. Herein is the gospel, the embedded hope in, in our text today that points us to joy unspeakable and full of glory, lest we all, without it, die a horrible death unto hell itself. Let us pray that God would replace our cravings for selfish affections, our cravings for self with affections for Christ on account of these truths. May I love the fact that Christ is the atonement provided for my iniquity. More on that in a moment. Let me give us our final point today. When we exalt our word over the word of God, not only are his, do His wonders remain unconvincing, do we languish in vanity... Does calamity inspire only superficial reform? But finally, our confession falls short of covenant. Verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. We could perhaps put that under category of confession. They mentally assented. They perhaps stated as much that God was their rock, the Most High, and their Redeemer. Yet verse 37 says... Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. So there is a state of mind where you can remember that God is certain things. You can, may I submit, say, confess God is certain things. But if there is no covenant fruit, if there is no faithfulness to the reality of these truths in your life lived, then there is cause for great concern. Your confession may be falling short of covenant assurance. Notice the names of the Lord by contrast to us in verse 35. He is described as the rock, the Most High, and the Redeemer. God is our rock. And who are we? We are like a wind. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. A rock, stable, unassailable, enduring, permanent, wind, transient, aimless. It comes and it goes. It cannot be followed. Utterly vaporized. Disappears. God is the most high God. He is the highest authority, the ultimate sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who are we? Mere flesh. As we see again in our text. God is the redeemer. Who are we? The iniquitous ones, the sinners. So this is a confession. God is the rock the Most High, and the Redeemer. But to live in light of those truths, to add to our faith actual trust, this will have an effect on a heart level. Their faith, their heart, was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. It is often said in theology that faith has three parts. First of all, there's a confession of the truth, or I should say there's an understanding of something. So an assent to a fact. Jesus Christ died. Okay, I understand that sentence. Secondly, there's truth. <clears throat> the, um, there, first, there's the knowledge of the fact. Secondly, there's assent to the truth. I believe that Jesus actually died on the cross for my sins. But then there's the third category, which is trust. This third category is the, is, is the state, this frame of soul that says, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And in Him is my hope and stay, my salvation, my assurance. I love my Jesus Christ who died for me. This stage three was missing. The heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not therefore faithful to His covenant. We won't go there this morning, but on your own time, do study Deuteronomy 28. A few sample verses, verses 1 through 6. verses 15 through 20, they indicate the covenant conditions or the covenant sanctions, I should say, blessings and cursing that attended obedience in the wilderness. 28, 28, 1 through 6 and and much more scriptures besides tell the people that they will be blessed as they come and go in their kneading bowl, in their affairs, their business efforts, in their relationships with one another, even in relative peace in their society, in their nation, their uh, international affairs, all of this if they follow the Lord. Whereas uh, Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 20 and surroundings say, conversely, that if they're unfaithful to the covenant, there's every reason to believe that they will have trouble in every single one of those categories. It's a helpful litmus test, is it not? In summary, in Deuteronomy 28, there's this message, beware by warning, beware lest there be among uh, you a man or a woman clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. I just referred to you to Deuteronomy 28. Now many uh, theologians, Bible thinkers, preachers and the like will likely tell you, let me prepare you for an objection, They will likely tell you that Deuteronomy 28 and 29 really don't apply to us today. After all, we're not theocratic Israel, quote-unquote. We can't expect the same, you know, proportional blessings and cursings corresponding with our obedience after coming to Christ. And I would just say don't don't, uh, jump to that conclusion that quickly. And let me tell you why. Not only is the Word of God... Forever applicable and relevant, and I believe in the sufficiency and continuity of Scripture that these principles carry forth. But I have corroborating evidence in the New Testament itself. In Hebrews chapter twelve, for instance, or uh, yes, in Hebrews chapter twelve, you may remember these words: the admonition by way of warning to the churches. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your uh, feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that, listen, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The author of Hebrews references Deuteronomy 29 to exhort the church to obedience that is commensurate, that is the fruit of the Gospel. And let me close on this point this morning. May we be pointed to the atonement of Christ and may we judge our hearts' growth to that end by fruit, covenant-keeping, faithfulness that joins our confession with a full-scale evidence that Christ has changed our hearts. May we pray, according to Psalm 78 and the other verses that we've talked about this morning, that our confession, may be accompanied by the fruit of covenant faithfulness as the lord grants us love for his word and an unfading appreciation for his atoning son jesus christ who is crucified for our iniquity let us close in prayer dear lord we thank you for your holy word and we thank you that your spirit has the power to write it upon the table of our hearts and to change us from the inside out. I pray for heart change for all of us, that more fruit of faithfulness and covenant, the reality of the relationship that we have with you, would sink deeply into our souls, deeply into our minds, that we might love you with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Lord, equip your people to grow this way today, that we might see the covenant blessings that attend the way of those who trust body and soul, in every way in life, in the sufficiency of your holy word. May this be a witness to the unbelievers. We've spoken by way of application, Lord, today, recognizing that there are so many in our nation who are languishing in vanity, who find your wonders unconvincing, who, of whom calamity seldom moves them to true reform. Why? Because their confession falls short of the covenant and they've exalted themselves and their own word above your word. I pray, Lord, that through the proclamation of the truth of the gospel lived out through the lives of believers and through the proclamation of your holy scripture, that you would bring true repentance and faith to the lost and unbelieving in this land, that your glory might be seen, Lord Jesus, catching fire and bringing revival, true revival to us in this day and age. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.